Hey, and welcome to the teaching podcast of Calvary Chapel, Newcastle. At Cows, we like to keep things simple. We are committed to verse-by-verse teaching through the Bible to help people know, love, and become fully committed followers of Jesus. It is our prayer and hope that this message challenges, encourages, and equips you to that end. The story is told of a sergeant-in-arms who brought in a young Macedonian soldier into the courts of Nebuchadnezzar's palace there and sat atop the throne of Nebuchadnezzar's palace up the top of the stairs was the Greek conqueror Alexander the Great. Uh, This young soldier, he'd been brought into the courts charged with a crime and it was the job of Alexander to render judgment over this crime. The story goes that this soldier was, he was really just a boy, he was a little teenager and looking down upon him from his throne, Alexander the Great, he leaned in and goes, son, what's your name? The young soldier, he looked up, hunched, Alexander, my daddy named me after you. Well, sitting back, Alexander the Great, he looks across to this sergeant at arms who brought him in and he says, what's the boy's crime? And the story goes that this sergeant-at-arms stood at attention and said, defection. He ran from the battlefield in the face of the enemy. And so Alexander now looks back at this young boy and he leans forward and he says, what did you say your name was? And now with a quiver in his voice, this boy looks up and goes, "Uh, Alexander. Alexander the Great stood up. He took a a step forward down the staircase, looked at the boy dead in the eyes and yelled, what did you say your name was? Alexander was like the conqueror back then, by the way. No empire has matched what he had. Uh, uh, Alexander, my king. So Alexander the Great, he continued that descent and he got down there to the face of this young Macedonian soldier and he grabbed him by the tunic and he pulled him up. And he looked him in the eye and said, boy, you will change your conduct or you will change your name. That's Ephesians chapters 4 and 5. Change your conduct or change your name. We've spent seven weeks now as a church studying Ephesians chapters 1, 2 and 3 in our series, Sit, Walk, Stand. Over these weeks, the Apostle Paul, he has shown us our name as God's people. We are saints, called out ones, the ecclesia, the church. Seated in Christ, in the heavenlies, as citizens of heaven. We are members of the household of God. That's Ephesians 1 to 3. That is our identity. That is our nature. That is our name. Well, here in chapter 4 now, we're turning a corner. If you're taking notes, I've put the outline of this talk on the screen. The outline's actually the title. Got a little creative this week. The Christian Walk. Unity, Diversity, Maturity. So looking here at verse 1, the Christian walk, we see this turning of the corner immediately in the first couple of words. Take a look here. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you, saints, to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. This, therefore, is a conjunction. It's a connecting word. It's like a swing gate that rotates us out from the realities that we've sat in as a church for seven weeks now, uh, Ephesians 1 to 3, it swings us open, it pivots us out from 
our seatedness in those realities of who we are in Christ now to our walking out of those realities in everyday living. That is going to cover Ephesians chapters 4 and 5 for us the next couple of weeks. This is a turn from our name to our conduct. It's like Paul is grabbing us by the tunic and he's pulling us in and he's saying, change your conduct or change your name. After all, remember that high point that Mick landed on last week. The high point of Ephesians 1 to 3 is in that very final verse, which this therefore immediately goes back to. 3.21, to him, Christ, God, be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all the generations forever and ever. Amen. The glory of God is displayed in the church through our conduct as much as our name. That's why Paul urges us here to get up from where we've been sitting and stretch our legs and start walking in a manner worthy of our name. Ephesians 1 to 3, now 4 to 6, is a transition, transition from our calling to our conduct, our doctrine to our deeds, our sitting to our walking. Sit, walk, stand. Today we're going to go walk about now, here's um, some Bible trivia. Did you know that in the book of Ephesians, there is 41 imperatives, 41 instructions for how we are to live as Christians? 41. Of those 41, only one has appeared prior to this point. And even then, it's not really a moral instruction, so you could get a pass sitting on through that one. Uh, Ephesians 2.12, remember that you were once far off from the covenants of promise. Up until this point, We've had no moral instructions, which means if there's 41, we've only had one of a memory. From here on, it is instruction after instruction after instruction after instruction. So that doesn't mean, though, that these past seven weeks have not been, you know, on the ground, get it done, practical kind of teachings for us. In fact, I would argue just the opposite. You know, many of you know that Julie and I have two beautiful little baby babies that populate creation one soon too. They speak out of turn often throughout the service. <laughs> um, kids don't learn to walk before they learn to sit. In fact, a child that starts walking prematurely, they can bow their little legs and that can cause damage to them because they aren't ready to take the weight on those legs of their walk. Spiritually, that's what's going on here. These are the realities that we have sat in now in Ephesians 1 to 3 about who we are in Christ for seven weeks. They have given us a massive foundation upon which we can now walk. We had to have that seven weeks going through Ephesians 1 to 3. We needed it. Because if all we ever hear is do, do, do without who, 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 <laughs> um, then we would be trying to do stuff from the wrong origin and to the wrong end. We would not have this recognition of what Christ has accomplished on our behalf and the reality that there is nothing more that we can do that he hasn't already done for us on the cross. And so we would be walking out trying to achieve our own salvific ends, trying to make a name for ourselves by what we do, by our conduct. Our gospel would be a gospel of works, not of grace. This is 20th century existentialism for any people who like the name of philosophy. This is all about trying to experience life in such a way that we can make our own meaning and purpose towards our own end so that your value is tied to your doing. And when your ability to do goes, it's no coincidence that last century as well, the philosophy of suicide was rampant. Both ends here, ultimately, of a gospel of works are bowed legs. One is legalism, 
and the other is rebellion. And both are a kind of spiritual paralysis. I don't know if the story of Alexander the Great and that young Macedonian is true. It's highly unlikely if you look at the history books. I couldn't find any record of it. Uh, it's one of those stories, though, that you just want to be true because it's good. Either way, it doesn't matter for my purposes today because that Macedonian kid may as well have been called Dave Dean. Uh, Fourteen years ago, a little after six in the morning, I sat on a bench overlooking some mountains in Katoomba. My fingers were cold as I thumbed my way through this very little Bible here, uh, looking for a, a short passage in the New Testament to you know, meet me and my attention deficit where I was at. That morning, as I was reading through a book in the New Testament, it's as though the Lord grabbed me by my jacket and pulled me in and said, David, change your conduct or change your name. If you follow me, David, then boy, follow me. Don't tell me that you follow me. Follow me. And that word from the New Testament is the very text that I get the privilege of speaking to you from today. Uh, it, was, it was all of Ephesians 4 and 5, but this uh, passage today, 1 to 16, is going to set up this walking in the Christian life. And it begins here in verse 1 with a qualification. Don't just get up and move. Walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have received, to which you have been called. This idea of walking, it actually has historical significance in the time of the first century. Greek philosophy, it dominated the public schools back then, and the Greeks were the, the academics. There was uh, two dominant schools of thought in the ancient world in antiquity. There was a Platonic school, that's the philosophy of Plato, you know, the, the teachings of Plato. He was the fifth century Athenian there. Uh, he founded an institution known as the Academy. And if you went along to the Academy, you were called an academic. The students of the academy were academics. You can see how that's translated today. Uh, the other school was the Aristotelian school, and that was founded by a student of Plato named Aristotle, um, who, by the way, happened to be the teacher of Alexander the Great. That's not legend. That's history. Uh, interesting. He founded an institution that was known as the Peripatos. So you had the academy and the Peripatos. There were academics and there were peripatetics. Every other Greek school of thought that you have ever heard of, that's a general statement, but basically every other Greek school of thought that you have heard of, following Plato and Aristotle, your Stoics, Epicureans, Gnostics, and so on, they are all footnotes to these intellectual giants. Stoicism, for example, that we read about in Acts, that is just a, a derivative of Platonism in different forms. Now, now Plato's academics, um, the students there, they were educated in a way that's similar to the way we are educated here and also you know, in the university system. You'd sit down and you'd listen to somebody who's speaking to you from up the front. By contrast, the peripatetics, they learned not just by listening to Aristotle, but by walking with him and by learning from him as he touched the flowers and pointed to the clouds from place to place. That's actually what the word peripatos means, by the way, of walking. It was a school of walking. So here in Ephesians, when Paul urges us to walk, He's using Aristotelian language that meets the people where he's at. Remember, there's a predominantly Gentiles there in Asia Minor. And he's applying it to the way of Christ. Now, contrast walking with sitting for a moment. There's something very practical about walking, isn't there? 
engaging and taxing even on the body as we walk. Imagine if we were walking and I was just preaching to you as we walked down the road. It'd be a very different experience. And if I was preaching to you from the things that I could see as we went, your whole body will be involved. Your senses will be heightened. It is an embodied reality when we walk. Now consider the way Paul refers to himself here in verse 1. I, a prisoner for the Lord. Paul is an apostle of Jesus Christ, but he doesn't appeal to his apostleship here. He simply identifies himself as a prisoner. Remember, he's writing from Rome, so this is actually true. It's not just poetic. In other words, Paul is saying that Christ is so worthy to me and my walk that I'm willing to conduct myself in a manner that puts me in chains for the name of Christ. Paul is calling us. He's not throwing ideas at us and saying, good luck. He's calling us to walk in a manner that has put him in chains. He is where he is calling us to be. And he's saying that the walk is worth it, even if it puts you in chains, and even if it takes your life. And we know that it did not many years from the time of this text. That's what it is to walk. It's total. It's embodied, and it may cost you your life. It's earthy as well, isn't it? It's local. It, it, it's day-to-day, day, it's dust on your feet. It's, it's friends holding your hand as you walk, patting you on the back when you get tired from the noonday sun. And it's sometimes straining to hear your teacher's voice because you got pushed towards the back of the pack and the teacher's up the front speaking and you're getting further away from your teacher and all you can hear is the, the sound of the people in the marketplace trying to sell you their stuff and you get distracted and you look around and you're like, where am I? And you've got to run and catch up and then you stub your toe and then your friends help you. It's a different experience, walking. It is total. It is embodied. That's what it is to walk. And he says here that we aren't just moving. We are walking in a certain way. The movement has a purpose. First one, walk worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Where the walk is the day-to-day, that's the dust on your feet. The worthy is the adjective describing the shape of that walk. It also happens to be one of Paul's favourite words in his various writings. It's the Greek word axios, which means middle, point of balance. The earth rotates on an axis. Your car wheels rotate on an axle. If you want to cut a log, you go and you pick up an axe and you cut that thing down the middle. It's a point of middle and a point of balance. That is the manner of our Christian walk. Our calling, Ephesians 1 to 3, Balances our conduct, Ephesians 4 and 5. The name of Christ must balance our Christianity. Our identity balances our obedience to these instructions. Doctrine balances deeds. And across the next two chapters, Paul is going to make this point very, very clear with the contrast that he makes to us as God's people, the called out ones. It is our walk that sets us apart from the world around us. Remember the law of Moses. It was obedience to that law that set the nation of Israel apart from its neighbours. You know, the the hair laws, the shellfish and all that stuff. There was some moral value to some, some, you know, uh, legal kind of value to some. And there were other ones that were just made them unique as a people group. They weren't random. It was all about identifying who they were amongst the nations. Today, it is obedience to these instructions. It is our walking in a manner worthy of who we are in Christ that sets us apart from the world today. Paul's already told us this in Ephesians chapter 2. We are dead in our trespasses and sins, which we once walked. 
But God created us in Christ Jesus for good works that we should walk in them. See the contrast? Next week, James is going to join us up here at the front and he is going to be teaching us about how the Gentiles walk in darkness. But you know the way of Christ and walk accordingly. Ephesians 5.2, walk in love as Christ loved us. Ephesians 5.8, walk as children of the light. 5.15, walk wisely. Walk, 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 walk. You see the contrasts. Christians walk one way. Everyone else walks another. Two walks, two roads. The narrow road, the broad road. Life, death. Do you see why Paul is urging us to walk in a manner worthy, given those ends? Change your conduct or change your name, lest you bear his in vain. That's verse 1, the Christian walk. Here in verses 2 through 6, Paul is going to get a little bit more specific about what a worthy walk looks like. From the instruction to walk now to the instructions for how we are to walk specifically. Look here, verse 2. Walk with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Humility, gentleness, patience, bearing, love, eagerness. One, two, three, four, five, six traits that I count characterizing the way that we are to walk worthy of our calling. Now, on first reading, these instructions kind of let me down a bit. I was just like, Oh, okay. Seems a little domestic. From the lofty doctrine of where we've just come these last seven weeks, you know, this lavish grace overflowing from the triune God of our salvation there, from the riches of his grace in Christ Jesus to, hey guys, can you just get on with each other? <laughs> come on, we're family, remember? But as I was thinking about it, that's kind of the point isn't it, when it comes to the walk. Again, the walk is very local. It's very domestic. It's very get it done day by day. It's dust on our feet. And that goes to show us that the high doctrine of the gospel that is mind-bending before the foundation of the world, literally beyond reason, not against it, but beyond it, has trunk in the mundane of the moments here and now. It's not ethereal, it is embodied because Christianity is an idea, it's a way. It feeds into this experience of walking. And as we walk, do we not need to be told to put up with one another? Do we not need to learn that? At home, husbands, wives, I'll leave that one for somebody more learned than me to preach about in a couple of weeks. Children, colleagues, people sitting next to us here right now. Do we not need to be told to learn how to put up with one another? You bet you do. Because, again, Christianity isn't an idea. It is a walk. There is dust on our feet. There is dirt on you. There is dirt on me. And we need to learn how to deal with that in a way that doesn't bring dishonor to the name that we bear. That's why Paul writes this, because we need to know how to glorify the God whose name we bear. So walk with humility and gentleness, he says. Humility and gentleness, these are reflexive realities, meaning that they come in response to something, in this case, our rescue from the hopeless deadness of our sins. We don't earn our salvation. We come repentant and we plead faith 
we plead by faith the mercies of God in Christ Jesus. By its very nature, that repentant heart is humbling, isn't it? And here's an interesting footnote, at least to me, as I was studying through this. When John the Baptist, he charged the Pharisees and the Sadducees for coming down to the Jordan, he yelled out to them and he said, You brood of vipers, who warned you of the wrath to come? Bear fruit worthy of repentance. The Christian walk is a walk that is appropriate to repentance. It is fitting to repentance. Repentance, therefore, is the currency of the economy of God. Repentance is the currency of the economy of God. A broken spirit and a contrite heart you will not despise, O Lord, was the great prayer of David. Grace keeps our hearts humble. It is the reality that we sit in. It's the reality as well that we walk in. And when humility encounters other people, what does it look like? Gentleness. Humility is the inner state. Gentleness is the way that's expressed outwardly in a social context. Show me someone who's gentle and I'll show you their humility. Show me someone who's abrasive and we'll see their pride. And if that's convicting to you, if you find yourself abrasive more than you care to admit, as I know I do, uh, then can I just say three real quick things to you, to me. Plead with God, number one, plead with God to grant you humility that you may be gentle. Second, consider your calling, as Paul instructs 1 Corinthians 1. And how do we do that? By staring at the realities of Ephesians 1 to 3. The realities that are true of you, that you sit in as a Christ one. Remind yourself of your nature, of your name, of what it is to be seated in Christ. And third, be affected that you may be effective. Then I will teach transgressors your way, says David in Psalm 51. It's beautiful. A broken spirit and a contrite heart gets to that point so that God can remake him so that he can now be effective in his ministry. If God grabs you by the tunic, don't push back. You let God have his way with you. And you go have that conversation. You go give that apology. Or you just get in a corner and stay quiet. Humility, gentleness. We see here also verse 2, patience. And bearing with one another in love. I think patience, bearing and love, they, these all flow from humility and gentleness. Such that there's almost like a hierarchy of traits here. I mean, not having a short fuse, right? Not retaliating quickly. These realities are instances of gentleness. They, they flow in turn from humility. So real practical now. When that person says that thing to you, when they've done that thing, whatever it is, it may just may just be that you need to suck it up and walk away. Maybe. Being very general here. But David, that's just so wrong. It's unjust. We need to fight for what is right. Personal justice. Social justice. You know what Christ-like justice looks like? It looks like being stretched out and having your hands and your feet nailed to a plank of wood and in that very moment, asking God the Father to forgive them for what they're doing. And not only that, pleading the case to the Father upon the basis of their ignorance. That's tough. It's not weakness. It's meekness. 
It's power constrained with the recognition that you are involved in something much bigger than yourself and your feelings, which are important, but not everything. Christ-like conflict resolution is not a demo job. It's bridge building. So far as it is possible, live peaceably with all. It may not be possible, but so far as it depends on you. It may not be appropriate, but so far as it depends on you. Sometimes you're going to have to take the hits. Sometimes you're going to have to turn the other cheek. But I can't, David. You, you do not know what's happened to me, young man. <laughs> I have 30 years on you and you have no clue what you're even speaking about up the front. You're right. Maybe I have no clue. I don't know about your situations. But I know the Lord and I know that he does. And what servant is greater than his master? How can our pursuit of personal justice and the need to enact vengeance for the wrongs done to us, if it's not Christ-like, we're saying that we can do a better job than what he did on the cross? Give it to him. What are you going to do with it anyway? She's getting into James's territory next week. Didn't let the sun go down in anger. There is a place to be angry, but it's what are you going to do with it? And what's it going to do to you? I have people in my family who are controlled from men who've been dead for 30 years because they won't forgive them. Unforgiveness is like you drinking poison hoping they die. It eats you alive and they're not even thinking about you. Let it go. Forgiveness doesn't mean it's okay. It doesn't mean reconciliation. It doesn't mean that the offence didn't happen. It does mean liberation from the pursuit of personal vengeance that will eat you out like a cancer. We forgive because we've been forgiven. We love because he first loved us. We must be humble. We have to be gentle. How can we not be patient? How can we not bear one another in love? God's grace is bigger than our grievances. That is why you can forgive. That is why you can walk away. Verse 3. Be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Here Paul tells us, amongst a lot of other things, that the Christian walk requires effort. <laughs> this doesn't come easy, guys. This isn't like unrelatable instruction here. It doesn't come easy. You put him in change, remember? Right? Let's not forget who's writing this. It doesn't come easy to be gentle, to be humble, to be patient, to be loving. They require daily work in as much as you're walking daily. Again, the metaphor of walking, is it's apt. We sweat, right? Dust on the feet. You get the point. But the fruit here is unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. There's so much talk today in this world about unity, uh, inclusion, equality, and so on. But along with all the talk is so much warring. Just get on Facebook and get off real quick. We live in a world where what divides us is greater than what unites us most of the time. Well, in the church, we don't have to war for a consensus. I'm not saying we don't, but we don't have to war for a consensus because we don't create unity. We have it already in the spirit. See, right here, unity in the spirit. What binds us together as a community is not our culture, it's not our creed, it's not our colour, it's not our class, it's not our denominational catechism, which is growing by the day in Christendom around the world. 
It's the Spirit of God. If there is a base common denominator for anything that we call unity in the Christian worldview, it is the Spirit of God. You go to Japan, you go to Israel, you go to North America, you go to South Africa, you go to Kajikistan, wherever it is, Tajikistan, wherever it is, they're brothers and sisters in the Lord because of the Spirit. Paul's already told us this in rich doctrine, by the way. Ephesians 2.22. In him, you're also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Think about that. The Spirit of God constitutes the church as a place of God. No longer a tent of meeting in a desert outside of Egypt. God tents in you. Do you not know that you're a temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells within you? Well, how would I know that, Paul? Galatians 5, 22 to 23. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. These are the fruits of the Spirit. Sound a lot like what we're reading about here, right? This is what it is to walk as a Christian, to bear the fruit of the Spirit that you're united in as a Christian. The fruits of repentance, the traits of a walk. We should be eager to maintain them, Paul says. Like, like restlessly, proactively setting alarms to remind ourselves to do stuff kind of eager. You're eager to eat because you're hungry? What about the spiritual food for your soul? Oh, I've got to catch up with them. I haven't seen them. What about fellowship with the Spirit? Are you eager? What are you going to do different now when you leave this church building and go home? To evidence this in your life because this is what it looks like to walk. Our eagerness in this, by the way, the end isn't just for the sake of unity, you know, in a vague, nebulous sense. It's not unity for the sake of unity. That's the issue with the culture, right? We all want unity, but we don't know what we're united in. So we war about what it is, what a little group or puddle or pond we want to be a part of. Our eagerness to maintain unity is for the sake of what unites us. Again, the spirit of God. This is the bigger thing than us. This is why we have cause to recognise that although our thoughts and our feelings matter, they don't matter more than the spirit that dwells in us. And that's why he can actually renew us daily. Let me say that in a negative way. <clears throat> when Christians allow our disagreements to be greater than the spirit of God who unites us, then we are saying in effect that these differences, the thing that you've said to me, the thing that you've done to me, the stance that you have on this particular social or political issue that means I'm no longer going to come to this building anymore, whatever it is, whatever that may be, when we allow what is different amongst us to be greater than that which unites us, we are saying in effect that they are bigger than the Spirit of God who unites us. That's blasphemy and that's idolatry. The Spirit of God who dwells within us is God. A divisive Christian is a divided person. They have an identity problem. A spiritually split personality. Change your conduct or change your name. I mean, it's like family. I'm just using lots of metaphors here. We have wild disagreements in our family. Come to Christmas at my house. But what do we say? It's my sister. It's my brother. It's my mum. It's my dad. It's my crazy uncle. Don't know who gave birth to him. Crazy. But he's family. You can deny it all you want. You can act like you aren't related, but the biology and the blood is still there. It's the same in the household of God. You can deny it all you want, 
You can act like they're an unbeliever. But the blood of Christ still flows, flows through their veins. That's why Paul goes on here to say, verses 4 through 6, there is one body, not there maybe, not we hope to, there is one body, one spirit, just as you are called to one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all, who is through all and in all. There is. Unity isn't a hope. It's a reality here and now for the church that we are called to grow in. Teams are another analogy here. When you go through something together, some conflict, some trial, some change, what good does it do as a team if we start kicking goals against each other? Did you hear about such and such? They said, what? Oh, I'm not going to talk to them. You shouldn't talk to them either. can't believe what happened. When you start shooting own goals against your teammates, you don't win. I don't win. We all lose. We don't get to be nice to people until the moment they stuff up and then we steamroll them. You'll be a spiritual better one if you do that, going from church to church to church every time you smell a little bit of disappointment. 1 Corinthians 12, 26, if one member suffers, if one member suffers, all suffer. And conversely, if one is honoured, all are honoured. We're a team. There are no winners when there is conflict in the body of Christ, only a foothold for the devil that James is going to unpack for you next week. Either we work together as a team in the unity of the spirit for the goal set before us, or we shoot against each other like sore losers. Get along with your teammates. I beg you, says Paul. I urge you, says Paul. Get along with your teammates because that goal is not about you ultimately. Love the unlovely because you have been loved when you were yet rather unlovely. Okay, stock take real quick. Verse 1, walk in a manner worthy of our calling in Christ. Verses 2 to 3, that work looks like unity amongst God's people. Verses 4 through 6, one body in one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. One, 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 unity, 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 unity. But did you notice Paul snuck in a little bit of diversity in there? Verse 4, spirit. Verse 5, Lord or son. Verse 6, father. There is unity in the oneness of the Godhead and there is diversity in the Godhead in the persons of Father, Son, and Spirit. You and I are creatures made in the image of God. We are called to reflect the triunity of God. There is a one people of the church, diverse in its many members. And we too must reflect that diversity in as much as we reflect the unity. That is what Paul will now swing us into here. Verses 7 through 12. Here comes the tension from all of this unity. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Four to six, the word one, it fell heavily on the objective realities of the Christian walk. One faith, one baptism, one Lord, etc. Here in verse seven, there is now this shift from one to each one, from the objective realities of our walk to the subjective reality of how we appropriate that into the lives of every individual walker. Walk, now as you're walking, this is what you will look like. From unity to diversity. 
And notice the first thing Paul says here about individuals. Grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Paul is saying that each one of us, Christians, have a special kind of grace that is measured up by the Lord and given out to us as a gift. Now, to be real clear, he's not talking about saving grace here, okay? I mean, you can't be a little bit pregnant. You can't be a little bit of a bachelor. Uh, You can't be a little bit saved by grace. (laughs) The grace that Paul is speaking about here that is measured out differently, this is a grace upon saving grace. It's what Peter calls varied grace in 1 Peter 4.10. It's a special kind of grace that comes in the form of giftedness. Let me ask you, have you ever thought in your head, I'm just not gifted? You come to church for a while now, I look around, I see these people, I can't do that, I've got nothing I can offer. I'm just not gifted. That's a lie. That's a lie. Paul says each one of us is gifted. Each one, you have been gifted in a way that the person next to you has not. To a different degree, in a different way. You are gifted. Trying to understand what that gift is may often does take time and effort and conversations and discernment and time. But make no mistake about it, you are gifted. The church, therefore, needs you. We need what it is that you have. You have something unique that you can offer, even here in this church, in this little community. In fact, as far as I know, not Every local church has every single gift possible, so we need each other. How beautiful would it be here in Newcastle to see more churches coming together in the unity and the solidarity that we have in Christ? Instead of making really high walls that it's easy to walk into and very hard to get out of. It's what Paul means here when he writes to the Corinthians, the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need for you, because we are all members of the one body and we all need each other contributing and complementing one another in the work of the ministry and the witness of the body that is Christ. Verses 8 through 10. Therefore it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean that he also descended into the lower regions of the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above the heavens that he may fill all things. (laughs) All right, so I was tracking with you, Paul. What what was that? He's getting a little OT on me here. Uh, Old Testament, not, not occupational therapy. <laughs> or maybe with the brain. Um, what, what the heck is going on here? Like, why did you do this, Paul? Paul is quoting Psalm 68, 18, which reads, You ascended on high, leading a host of captives in your train and receiving gifts amongst men, even among the rebellious, that the Lord God may dwell there. Psalm 68, if you read it in context, is all about military conquest of ancient Israel. When Israel were victorious, they would take the plunder of their conquest and they would measure it out for the people. And as they marched back into Jerusalem, going before them in this procession of captives ascending up the Temple Mount was the Ark of the Covenant. Evidently, this imagery came to the Apostle Paul's mind as he was writing about the diversity of gifts within the church. Why? Well, Paul gives us his reasoning here in verse 9. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he also descended? In other words, God the Most High, right, that's who he is. If he is ascending, then his ascending presupposes that he must have descended, right? Because if God's going up, he must have come down because, again, he's the one who's enthroned above the circle of the earth. Okay, so he's ascending, which means he must have descended. 
Now the question comes, when did he descend? The answer to that question may seem loaded like, here we go, Sunday school, J-E-S-U-S. But there is a, a wide disparity of interpretation on this particular phrase, the lower regions of the earth. Some take it to mean just the lower regions of the earth as in low here on earth, so the descent of Christ from heaven to earth would be the incarnation. Others take this phrase to mean within the earth, so the descent there would be not from heaven to earth, but from the cross to the tomb where he was laid and buried. Others take the idea a little bit further and suggest that the descent was a descent into Hades, the place of the dead. Hades doesn't necessarily mean hell, it just means place of the dead. You can have saints and uh, non-saints down there. So that descent there would be taken between Good Friday and Easter Sunday, the, the duration of Christ's death. Still others take this descent to refer to the Holy Spirit descending at Pentecost and distributing various gifts. All of these views are orthodox. All of them work with the text in, in good ways and have their pros and their cons. This isn't like at all something that we should be too split about. What do I think? Well, that last interpretation of the Spirit descending at Pentecost, it really works well given the distribution of gifts, I think, um, specifically here in Ephesians 4. But I don't think it makes much sense of Paul's stress on the idea that the one who ascended is also the one who descended. And clearly it's the Spirit coming down at Pentecost and it was Christ who was ascended through the clouds. The other interpretation there of Jesus descending into Hades during his three days of being dead does correspond to other passages that use this phrase, the lower regions of the earth, to refer to Hades. Tertullian, for example, the early church father, he argued that um, Jesus descended into Hades to allow the Old Testament saints to hear the gospel in there, so, and, and, and he led them free. Uh, Jerome and Aquinas, Thomas Aquinas, uh, they argued that Jesus went down there to give a, the dead a chance to hear the gospel. He preached his message of repentance and faith to them. Uh, and that view would perhaps correspond with other passages such as 1 Peter 3.19, which talk about Jesus preaching to the souls in prison. There's a lot in this, um, just for homework if you want to read some more. Until the late 19th century, that was the common interpretation within the church. Um, for me, I struggle to see how it connects, though, to the ascending and descending with the distribution of gifts still. I think it's got merit, and I think there's a lot to say on those points, but specifically, is that what Paul's talking about here? I'm not so sure. The incarnation view seems to make the most sense to me, but even then, I want to take it a little bit further, because this language of going down, it seems subterranean. It seems to be into the earth, and it's frequently associated with the realm of the dead, like that previous uh, interpretation suggests. So Jesus, I think, came in his incarnation, but he descended and went further still to the realms of the dead, to the lower regions of the earth, and from that place. Now, what he did there, I don't think Paul spells it out here. We could go to Peter for that. But from that place, he then ascended to heaven and ascended even further still above the heavens. And that language, that contrast between the lower regions of the earth and above the heavens, I think that contrast to me just sounds so much like Philippians chapter 2, 1 through 11, the great incarnational passage of Christ. It sums it up so nicely. Again, particularly with how it ends in Philippians 2, 1 to 11. God emptied himself. He came in the form of a man. There's the descent. But he went even further. He died. And he went even further by death on a cross. So God exalted him with the name above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. In heaven, on earth, and under the earth. That's triumphal language. It sounds a lot like Psalm 68. Jesus captured captivity, the curse of Eden. So taken that way, 
It's not necessarily mutually exclusive with some of those other ones either. But taken that way, Paul seems to be saying that the incarnation, the death, the resurrection, and the ascension of Jesus put him in a place of victory where he now sits at the right hand of the Father from which he can now bestow gifts to his people. The bounty of grace acquired from the conquest of the cross, just like the bounty of plunder from the subjugated nations in Psalm 68. Christ measures that bounty and he apportions it out to his people, to the church, for the purpose of, verse 10, filling up all things in Christ. His grace, his mercy, his wisdom, his love, his might, his power. In other words, the filling up of all things is something that the church does. Ephesians 1, 22-23 has already said this. He put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. It's amazing. The victory of the cross captured captivity that was bound in the curse of Eden. Sorry, there's a lot of alliteration there. <laughs> Death is dead. Death is dead. Oh, are you going to kill me, says Paul? Gain. Death is dead. Death is dead. There is an inbreaking here and now today of that victory of Christ on the cross. And it is it is inbreaking in the, the apportion, in the measure, in the handing out of God's grace in the form of gifts to you and I here. The revolution has begun, my friends. Oh, it has begun. The reclamation of creation lost in Adam has begun in the second Adam, Christ. And oh, by the way, where are you seated? In Christ. It's like we're this advanced colony of kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. You know, every good sci-fi flick, there's this early arrival party uh, before the main arrival, before the main event. That's you. That's you. You're an alien. You're a stranger. Peter, you're an ambassador for Christ in a foreign land. Paul to the Corinthians. That's you. That's what you're called out for, to be this arrival party in this era. God draws the borders, the boundaries, the seasons of your habitation that you may grope after him because he's not far from any one of us. Acts 17. This is not random in his providence that you're here to be a part of this arrival party. You could have been anywhere else in redemptive history. You are here with the gifts that you have for a reason. No wonder Paul urges us to walk in a manner worthy. We represent the hallowed name of that Father to whom we pray your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. If it's hallowed, if it's hallowed, if it's revered, how can we not be united? How can we squabble about the carpet colour, the music, what they said about me? when you were involved in cosmic order restructuring of this physical and spiritual domains. For goodness sake, it doesn't get any higher than that. You're participating in something that splits time and we're focused on my grievance, my upsetness, my squabble, my quarrel, whatever it may be. I'm not minimising that. I'm asking that we have perspective, okay? Because when we come before the beamer seat and we look into the mirror of the holy 
one who is God. Look at the saints of old. They fell down as though they were dead and they just kind of denounced a curse on themselves, Isaiah 6. Kill me now, right? I think we'll be a little bit embarrassed when we, when we are before the Lord and we think about the things that we have allowed to dishonour his name because we couldn't walk away. Change your conduct. Change your name. This is what happens when we look in the mirror of God's word. We get perspective. And it's humbling. It can be embarrassing. Preaching this in front of my family is particularly difficult. How do we go about filling all of this up? Uh, Verses 11 through 12. And he gave. Notice the word gave. He gave. He gives. The, The apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. Again, this is not an exhaustive list of all gifts that God has given. Verse 7 says, to each one of us, we are given gifts. What we have here in verse 11 is more of an explanation of how these gifts are measured out within the church. And I think as well, there's a bit of a progression here. Apostles and prophets, these men provided the revelatory foundation of biblical truth, at least in the New Testament context, or certainly the old with the prophets as well. I don't believe, I'm just going to state this, you can ask me after, I don't believe that these roles are in effect today. Ephesians 2.20, these men laid the foundation of biblical truth, a foundation of which Jesus Christ himself is the cornerstone. Uh, Then we have evangelists, those who take that revealed truth that has been laid on that foundation, they take that revealed truth, the gospel, that is given by the apostles and the prophets, to the nations, locally, internationally, whatever. Then we have shepherds, which just means pastor, and teachers, those within the local church context who have received this gospel from the evangelist at some point, and then within that local church context, uh, they preach and teach that word to the saints who they in turn, that they in turn may be equipped for the work of the ministry, which is the building up of the body of Christ. We're all involved. No matter who you are, you're all involved. You're, you're, you're on this list, right? We're all ministers. Jesus said, for even the Son of Man has come not to be served, that's the same word for minister, but to serve minister and to give his life as a ransom for many. Speaking of himself, the Apostle Paul said back in Ephesians 3, of this gospel I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace. Or in the words of Peter, as each one has received a gift, use it to serve, to minister one another as good students of God's varied grace. There it is. Jesus, Peter, Paul. They're all saying it. Exercised rightly, the use and the putting into action of our gifts should not puff us up over and above one another. They are gifts that should put us underneath one another so that we can serve and minister one another to help us along this narrow way where the walkers are few and the road is tough. The work of ministry is joining Jesus in humbling ourselves and becoming servants of other Christians, washing their feet from all that dust. The dust that they kicked onto you and got you dusty with too, perhaps. That is the mind of Christ that looks to the interests of others and not your own. And look here, verse 12, there's another progression. Equip, work, building. Equipping is the preparation phase. The word equip, it's descriptive of actually mending something that was already broken. We see it used in the Gospels with uh, John and James as they're mending their nets. This is fascinating. We could go 
many places with that idea of God using broken things. Uh, Pastors and teachers in a local church context, we are called to equip the saints for the exercise of their gifts in service of the kingdom. There is, you could almost translate that um, to help fix the saints, if you will, for the work of the ministry. And because we're all called in that, it's not like pastors and teachers get an exception to needing to be fixed. (laughs) Not at all. And the authority by which pastors and teachers do that, by the way, let me just do a, a little quick summary of Dave Dean's opinion on church leadership, doctrinally. The authority by which they do that is not their own. I am of the view that a pastor or a teacher does not hold any authority in a church in in virtue of their title, their experience, or their education. Who am I, as a teacher right now, to put demands on your life? Like seriously, if I come up and tell you to do something, who am I to tell you that? Christ is the head of the church and he mediates that headship in the local church context through the giving of gifts. And as for pastors and teachers, any authority that comes from the pulpit is derivative. We're conduits. It is the extent to which we are preaching the word that is not our own, namely God's, and the extent to which we walk that out in a manner worthy of the calling to which we have been called, in this case for a teacher or a pastor, that we have authority, but it's not because of us, it's in spite of us, it's the one who's walking and talking through us. Make sense? That's why I think you could sum up, you know, the calling of a pastor or a teacher with certain things that they need to say concerning sound doctrine. You could go through the list there, but also conduct above reproach because the moment you stop ministering the word in word and deed is the moment you become unfit for the pulpit. We don't replace the word of God. Make no mistake about it. I don't speak new revelation to you. And and I don't want you to come to me in a booth to confess your sins that I may take them to the Lord in prayer. (laughs) We have one high priest. We have one mediator between God and man, the man Jesus Christ. And our role as teachers and pastors is to get underneath you, to equip you, to know him in his word, and to encourage you to go speak to him and to help you discern the, ex- the, the gifts that you have on your life and then walk them out in the context of this church. That's called discipleship, which I think we can improve on. And that's a good segue here to this second point of progression, verse 12. Where equipping is the preparation phase, work is the working phase. All of us are involved in the work of the ministry because we're all saints, right? We all work together. We all minister together, each one according to the measure of the grace that has been given to us. So in this church, we have one walk with a diversity of walkers that is encouraging and equipping us on life's narrow way. Equipping is the preparation. Work is the working together. And finally, building is the end result. Jesus has won and will won. He has one on the cross and he will show that in a consummate physical way when he returns. And he has handed out those gifts between those two ends, those two eras, to you and I today in the church so that we can feel all in all, namely the building up the body of Christ. What does that mean to be well built? Well, think of a building, a well-built building. It needs to have structural integrity. It needs to be strong, have a solid foundation. It needs to have practical functionality. It needs to be fit for purpose. You know, there need to be access doors that go places and staircases that actually take us places. Uh, it needs to be aesthetically pleasing. It needs to look good. It needs to be appealing and desirable that people may actually want to walk in there because they don't think it's going to crush them with 
the second floor still falling down, you know? This is what the unity of the body in Christ is to be. Unity and diversity of Christians should look like a well-built building, or in this case, a well-built body unified in purpose. Psalm 133 describes unity like a sweet perfume. It should be beautiful. Exercise of our God-given gifts should smell good. It shouldn't be competitive. It should be inviting. A lot that you could read about in John 17 about that as well. Um, just to be clear as well, real quick, we, we don't finish this building project. This is made very clear in 1 Corinthians 13. Now we know in part, now we see through a mirror dimly, but when the perfect one comes, the partial will pass away and we will see him face to face. We are called to go about the exercise of our gifts. We won't do that perfectly because we're seeing in part and we'll stuff up. But when the perfect one comes, it'll be complete. So the Christian walk, unity, diversity, now finally in just a couple of minutes, maturity, 13 to 16. Paul characterises this building up of the body of Christ, this integrous, functional, beautiful reality as mature manhood, the measure and stature of the fullness of Christ. He's explained that we participate in the building up. He now explains what the goal of all of this is. And let me just dot point a few things here and then we'll wrap up. Number one, the work of the ministry that you and I are called to has maturity in Christ as its goal. So like here at Cal's Nui, for example, our aim isn't necessarily quantity. That may come. It's before anything else, quality. We don't necessarily need a big church, but we must have big Christians. Big Christians, mature Christians. That's the second point Paul describes here, verse 13. Maturity looks like this, two things. Number one, a mature, mature body is something that is united in their faith. It's one body, right? It's a singular and two, a mature body is united in their knowledge of the Son of God. Let me sum that up in a math equation. Christian maturity equals truth understood and truth embraced. Know your name and conduct yourself accordingly. Maturity is our goal. And Paul gives us three reasons here for that goal as well. Very quickly, verse 14, so that we won't be like little children. Wait, didn't Jesus say we're meant to be like little children in coming to him? Yeah, Paul is saying here in the sense of, our simplicity or our susceptibility, I should say, to deceit. So being tossed to and fro, our inability, the inability of children to discern error. That is, I think, what Paul is talking about here. Second, he says, verse 15, <clears throat> that maturity is our goal so they won't be like children. And secondly, so that we will be speaking the truth in love, that we will grow up speaking the truth in love. So don't be like little children, grow up. And how do you do that? By speaking the truth in love. Uh, I think I've mispreached that passage a lot in my life. I don't think that's principally just the idea of, you know, go tell somebody the truth, maybe hard, but do it in a loving way with a hug or whatever. I don't necessarily think that's what Paul is asking us to do here. Uh, after a little bit of time in the study, I think what Paul is saying here in this context is that we are to speak the truth of doctrine that is tossing everyone to and fro. We know doctrine from the pastors and the teachers who have equipped us. I think Paul is saying that altogether we speak doctrinal truth to one another and that is a means of loving one another. So in a sense, we're all teachers, not in maybe title, but in our walk and in our way. That's what Hebrews 3 says. Exhort one another every day, as long as it's called day, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. That takes me right back here to Ephesians 4 and being tossed to and fro with scheming and cunning and all the rest. 
Third, verse 16, the goal of maturity is that we would be built up in love. And this just falls out of speaking the truth in love. I didn't actually see this until right at the end of my prep, but this sums up the entire talk. Unity, diversity, maturity. Verse 3, bear one another in love for the sake of our unity. Verse 15, speak the truth in love. That's something we do as diverse members. And verse 16, the end result will be maturity in the body that is built up in love. Isn't the word of God amazing? And I just, we haven't even begun to unpack that passage. Believe me. (laughs) But from sitting for seven weeks to now walking in a manner worthy of the name of Christ, united in spirit, diverse in gifts, all for the work of the ministry in building up the body of Christ in love to the end goal of maturity in the fullness of our Saviour. That is Ephesians 4, 1 to 16. In a nutshell, that is the Christian walk, unity, diversity, maturity. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you now um, humbled by the word that pierces us in such a way that it can be um, embarrassing at times to read, much less, you know, teach. But Father, I thank you for this word. I thank you for the heavy, high, lofty theology that we've considered here these last seven weeks, the realities that we sit in. Thank you, Father, that you give us a name that we don't have to go out there and create a name for us like those trying to build that Tower of Babel to make themselves a name. Lord, you give us a name so that we're no longer defined by who we are or what we do. We're no longer defined by what we do, but by who we are in you. And who you are is priceless. There is no price tag on you, which, which means, Lord God, you give us a dignity above anything. Failures don't need to go to our heads, our hearts. Successes don't need to go to our heads. You just balance the life of the Christian walk out in our calling so that we can actually be equipped to walk. Uh, on a sure foundation of your very person in Christ. Lord, as we've looked at this text today, uh, equipped and ready to handle these instructions, I just ask that we as a church, a little humble community, a little local organisation of a living organism that is global, the church, I pray, Father, that we would be a people that smells sweet to the world, that we would be as perfume in our unity. I pray, Lord, that we would have the maturity to recognise that sometimes taking a hit and sometimes walking away for the cause of Christ doesn't mean or belittle whatever it is that's been said or done, doesn't mean that it shouldn't be talked through or walked through or whatever, but it means, Lord God, that you are our King and that you call us to walk and conduct ourselves in a manner worthy of what it is that you did on the cross If grace isn't bigger than my grievances, then you had no right saving me, but your grace is so much greater than my worst day. And that's why I must forgive other people. I must walk away. I can have the conversation in the right way at the right time, but Lord, not let the sun go down on my anger. Not let the devil get a foothold, because that disunity is a cancer, not only to our health, to our structural integrity, to our practical functionality, but to our look to this world. And you tell us in your prayer, Lord, that it is when we are in you like you are in yourself in the triune Godhead that people will know that Jesus is the Son of God. We literally bear witness to this world in our unity. And it is a fearful thing to carry your name in vain. 
Father, I pray that we would have that macro, cosmic, spiritual, physical, world-altering reality before us in truth and that you would blunten our tongue and our emotions and our physical whatever next time we're confronted with something that we may recognize first and foremost who we are in you and act accordingly. Give us wisdom. This, this is a practical thing on so many ways that we need wisdom and guidance and counsel with. I pray for wisdom for the leaders at this church, the teachers, the pastors, to be able to navigate these issues amongst us as well. But Lord, I just pray for unity that we would all be one. And may we love the gifts that we see in each other. May we encourage them and exhort each other and, and you know, lift each other up. Weep with those who weep and laugh with those who laugh and give honour where it's due. And Father, may we just pursue you as our ultimate end. And uh, may other things be said about us, sure, but may it not be said that we are a divided place. Amen. Thanks for listening to the teaching podcast of Calvary Chapel, Newcastle. If you'd like to check out more of our teachings, please visit ccn.org.au forward slash teachings.